Thanks so much for tuning into 7IM Church's podcast. We are so glad you are here. To connect with us, you can head over to 7imchurch.com slash connect, and we'd love to hear from you. We also post regularly on Facebook at 7IM Church, and we live stream all of our services Sunday morning at 10 a.m. on Facebook and YouTube. We believe that God is moving in our midst, and we are so humbled and excited to be a part. Thank you for listening to today's message. just tap into this question, what is marriage and what does the Bible say about it? More specifically, I want to try and define for you the answer to this question, what is a biblical marriage? And here's why I believe it's important, because how we define marriage will shape how we approach relationships. Dating relationships, friendships, every relationship that we have in our life. Y'all, the IRS is calling, you better answer it. (laughs) How you define marriage will shape how you approach relationships. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, if you've got your Bible. And I see Chris up here still has the electronic set excuse for a Bible called a cell phone. But uh, I'm just saying, y'all, get your Bibles out. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 22 this morning. But as you're turning there, I I came across this story this week. I thought it was awesome, so I have to share it. There was a Sunday school class, and they were teaching the children about how God created everything. So they were walking through the book of Genesis, how God created the heaven and the earth and all the animals. And then they got to the part where God created humans, and God created Adam, and then God created Eve out of Adam's rib. Well, little Johnny, he was really intrigued in this conversation of how God created Eve from Adam. Later on in the week, Johnny's mother noticed that he was lying on the ground in some pain. And he was crying, Mom, Mom, Mom. And so his mom ran over and said, Johnny, Johnny, what's going on? And Johnny looked up at his mom and said, Mom, I'm not ready yet, but I think God's given me a wife. Thanks for laughing, because I told that joke to my wife this week, and she didn't even get it, so appreciate the sympathy. Laugh this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. The Bible says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And all the men in the house said, No, come on, y'all. Oh, man, we got work to do. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself, its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The question this morning is, what is a biblical marriage? 
A biblical marriage is a covenant of mutual commitment between a man and a woman submitted to one another and to God. A biblical marriage is a covenant of mutual commitment. You see, what's so interesting is when we look at the way society would define marriage, society is trying to sell us that marriage is simply just a contract. It is a legal binding agreement. And what's so interesting is when the American government can take a hold of this concept or this idea or construct as marriage as a contract, what can they do? Set the rules for what defines marriage. But I'm here to speak some truth this morning and tell you that no matter what our government says marriage is or marriage isn't, God has already defined what marriage is. It is a covenant of mutual commitment. It's not a legal agreement between two consenting adults. Jesus actually speaks to this. Jesus is asked a question about divorce in Matthew 19, and he would go on and he would say these words in Matthew 19, verse 4 through 6. Have you not read that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he went on to say, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, marriage is from God, by God, and for God. It is a covenant between a man and a woman, united as one flesh under God. But we must differentiate the difference between what society would tell us is a contract of marriage versus what the Bible tells us is a covenant of marriage. So let's go ahead and throw that slide up there, the difference here. So a contract. Here's why marriage isn't a contract. A contract is based on mutual distrust. Like, just think about it for a minute. If someone shows up to your house to do work, usually there's a contract involved. Why? Because you don't fully trust the person that's doing the work, and the person doing the work doesn't fully trust you, the homeowner. What are you trying to do? You're trying to limit your responsibilities while still protecting your rights. That, that's what a contract is for. I'm going to limit my personal responsibility in this. So if the project isn't done right, it's not my fault as the homeowner. It's the worker's fault. But the worker is also doing the same thing. He's going, I'm going to limit my responsibility. So if something else in your house breaks while I'm working on it, that's not my fault. That's your fault. I'm going to protect my rights. I'm going to limit my responsibility. And, and this is how society would try to sell us marriage to be. Well, I'm going to limit my responsibilities. And when I'm married, it's still my money. It's still my house. It's still my way. There's still my children. I've got rights in this thing, don't I? Well, do you? Because the difference between the contract and the covenant is a covenant is not based on mutual distrust. It's actually based on mutual commitment. And a covenant actually limits our rights, yet increases our responsibility. It limits our rights because when two become one, it's no longer me. It's us. My rights are out the window. The marriage is now the priority. 
But it increases my responsibility because it doesn't get easier. Actually, it's funny. The Apostle Paul says it this way. I wish more of you were single like me because it's the easier lifestyle. So just saying, Tate and all the other single people in the house, just thank the Lord for the blessing of singleness while you got it. I'm just saying, y'all, it's in the Bible. It increases our responsibility because now we're in this covenant. Now we've got this commitment. So even when things get tough, it's no longer about my right. It's about the marriage. You see, what happens when we see marriage as a contract, we'll move in together, we'll live together, we'll shake on it. But then as it gets tough, we'll walk away as easy as it was for it to begin with. We'll stay together as long as we feel that we're in love, as long as we feel that our needs are being met, and as long as we feel that nothing better is coming along. But here's the problem with that. It's not just based on feeling. When we make a covenant, a, a mutual commitment under God, we stay together at all costs. Y'all know the marriage vow. Till death do us part. For what God has joined together, let no man separate. Here's why this is so interesting, all right? I told y'all we were going to get a little PG-13. But we have to go back to some of the roots of, of biblical marriage in order for us to truly see just how holy of a covenant and commitment this really is. The Hebrew word for covenant is actually berith. B-E-R-I-T-H. And berith literally means a cutting, a binding agreement, or a blood covenant. So, so there's a, a shedding of blood taking place in a covenant. You know, think of it this way. When Jesus gave his life on the cross... He was giving us relationship, giving us an opportunity to step into what? The new covenant. Well, that was only possible because he shed his blood. There was a cutting. There was this binding agreement taking place. Now, in the ancient Hebrew days, how they would practice this in a marriage ceremony you know, if you've been watching The Chosen with us this week, we watched an episode where there was a, a marriage celebration taking place. But in this time period, at the reception or the party of the marriage, there was this almost tent-like structure called a hapa. And in that hapa, what would happen after the marriage ceremony is the new bride and groom would go inside of this tent while the party's going on, all right? Just... It's going to get a little awkward this morning, but just picture this or don't picture this, however you want. The bride and groom go into this tent, and what are they doing? They're going to consummate their marriage. Well, biologically speaking, when a woman who's a virgin has sex for the first time, there is a shedding of blood. Well, what they would do in the Hebrew tradition is they would actually take a towel. They would put some of that blood on it. And the bride and groom, after they're done consummating their marriage, would step out of the tent and they would wave the towel as a flag to celebrate that God has just joined two and the two have become one flesh. You want to know why that's disgusting for a lot of us? Because the devil has convinced us in America that sex is not just within the covenant of marriage 
but it's for pleasure and recreation. I believe the number one attack that we have on marriage in America is the idea of what sex really is and what it was intended to be for. Sex was the, the covenant. It was the act where the two would become one flesh. But nowadays, this is a kind of staggering and really saddening statistic. Only about 20% of the marriages in America are the bride and groom on their wedding night having sex for the very first time. And we wonder why the divorce rate is so high in our country. We wonder why we don't understand this idea of what a true marriage covenant is. It's because for so long we've bought into this lie that we'll do it when we want, we'll do it with who we want, we'll do it any way we want. It's my body, it's my choice. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room this morning, this doesn't apply to you. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you this morning, your body is not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Well, pastor, I'm single, I'm this, I'm that. What does this have to do with me? Well, Hebrews 13, 4 says the marriage should be honored by all. Not just those married, not just those planning on being married, but everyone should honor the covenant of marriage. The marriage bed should be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. But can we say, come on, pastor, tell me the good news. Someone needs to say, tell me the good news. Here's the good news. When you give your life to Jesus, you're made new. The old is gone, the new has come. So if you're in this room this morning and you're thinking, well, how do I have a biblical marriage if I've already messed that up? I haven't saved myself or my spouse on that day. How do I do it? Well, I had a, a pastor, a youth pastor one time, and don't, you can repeat it if you want, but he, he didn't just go around saying I'm a born-again Christian. He said, I'm a born-again virgin. But he believed it so much that he owned the reality that even though his past was one thing, he was truly redefined and recreated when he gave himself to Jesus. And that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That no matter what our story is, that it's not over yet. But we have to understand as the church that marriage is not just a contract. And here's why. Because when we understand and when we, we accept that marriage is simply just a contract, people in society begin to ask this question. Well, if it's just a contract, why bother getting married? Like, what's the point? Did you guys know in the last 30 years, the percentage of married Americans has drastically declined? Because they believe this lie. But here's what's so interesting. The number of marriages has drastically declined. But the number of adults cohabitating has more than doubled in that time frame. So what does that tell me? That there's less marriages, yet more people are living together outside the covenant of marriage. There was a Barna survey taken in teenagers in schools across America, and 80% of the teenagers in this survey said that they plan to or expect to cohabitate before marriage. Why? 
Because that's what society is selling them. 80%. And, and often the reasoning behind it, there's several reasons why people might choose to do it. They don't understand or see the purpose in marriage. They're trying to save money. But oftentimes when teenagers were asked, well, why do you plan to cohabitate before marriage? The number one answer was this, to practice what marriage is like and decide if I want to be with them for the rest of my life. Well, there's this little known psychological effect that takes place when people begin to cohabitate. And scholars have defined it as the cohabitation inertia effect. And what they're watching take place in America is that people aren't deciding to make commitment. They're simply just sliding into commitments. And what happens is they become fully entangled in each other's lives, but not fully committed. And so what does that mean? As easy as it was to move in, it's just that easy to move out. Well, pastor, we weren't married, we're not divorced, we just were dating and living together and we're just breaking up. Well, you were practicing marriage, right? So what just took place? You practiced divorce. And so what we're watching happening all around our culture, all around our society is not only are people practicing what marriage looks like without the blessing of marriage that can only come from the covenant of marriage, they're now practicing divorce. So therefore, it's easier for us to walk away from something because what? Practice makes perfect, right? So because you've already practiced it, it's easier to do it. Again, this is why it's so important as the church. That we take off the veil, we get real, and we have some of these honest conversations. This is why it's so important that your children, that our teenagers, that they understand the, the biblical context of what marriage is, what sex is. And we need to step in, we need to speak up, and we need to stop letting society and culture disciple our children. Like, I'm just going to say it, y'all. I don't know if you watch the Grammys. But our culture is anything but pro-Jesus. Like, I, I find it so interesting when we come up to these big moments in sports. And, and I read an article from, I think it was Charisma Magazine, and it was like, here's all the outspoken Christians in the Super Bowl. I'd argue that one of the 17 they had on their list were actually an outspoken Christian. Lifestyle says a lot. Words say a lot. Just because somebody in front of a television camera says glory to God does not mean that they're an outspoken Christian. I'm just saying society and culture is coming after our children, trying to disciple them, trying to teach them things, trying to equip them, trying to empower them in ways that are not of God's ways, in opportunities that are not of what God wants them. And we wonder why our children go, where's the blessing in this? Well, it was never intended to be that way, child. God has so much better in store for you. The church needs to speak up. Because if we don't disciple our children, I'm telling y'all, society will. Parents, if we don't disciple our children, society will. They need a mom and dad more than they need a best friend. 
that wasn't even, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here. Stick with us. <laughs> but it's an attack that's so real, y'all. 96% of teenagers from the age of 13 to 19 years old who end their life in suicide were not a virgin. 96%. 13 through 19 years old. Why are you telling me that? Because there is so much more to sex than recreation. Identity is attached to it. We've got to speak into this truth that marriage is not just some legal contract that the American government sets the standard for. It is a covenant of mutual commitment between a man and a woman submitted to one another and to Christ. What is a biblical marriage? A biblical marriage is a mission built on the foundation of Christ. A biblical marriage is a mission built on the foundation of Christ. Look back at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Woman, submit to me. I've heard that so many times, y'all. I'm just saying Men come in and they're like, hey, I've got this issue in my marriage. And if she would just submit, it all work out. Well, did you read verse 21? Right before it? Context matters here. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, what we read when we read Wives, submit to your own husbands. We might read that as a chauvinistic or some male dominance scripture that says, oh, they've got to submit, submit, submit. When Paul wrote this, actually what he was doing is the exact opposite. He wasn't taking away the authority from women. He was actually giving women authority. Because in this time period, in culture, in society, women had to submit to every man. That they interacted with on a day-to-day -day basis. They had no voice. They had no authority. So when Paul was saying this, he was saying, wives, submit to your own husband. He was giving her the authority that she now has a voice. She now has just submitted to one man, not every man in society. This is actually what he was saying. But even greater than that, it wasn't just one-sided. Because Paul was actually inviting man and woman to come together and submit to the mission. I want to look at this word submission a little deeper. Break it into two pieces. What does sub mean? Sub means under. Think of submarine. Think of subway. I don't know what that, I don't really know what that means, sorry. I'm hungry, all right? But sub, this, this word means to go under. And, and mission. What is the mission when you're married? Well, the mission is the marriage. So this idea of submission is not husband, wife, but husband, wife, Jesus Christ. Like, they're, they're here. And, and we're under the mission of Marriage. So practically, what does this mean for us? Well, if the mission is the marriage, then I'm not fighting 
for my preference. I'm fighting for our purpose. And the mission is the marriage. So that doesn't mean I'm fighting for me. It means I'm fighting for us. And sometimes, sometimes in order for the marriage to win, I've got to lose. Now, I'm not saying that you become a doormat for your spouse. And I'm speaking in generalities this morning. So there might be specific, extenuating circumstances where you're in a, a very unhealthy relationship. And, and that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is in order for our marriage, the mission to succeed, husband or wife, sometimes that means we need to lose. We need to step back. We need to realize that us winning is the most important thing. Although society would tell us otherwise. You do you, boo. Your feelings matter the most. Do what makes you happy. Or this phrase, happy wife equals happy life. A happy marriage equals a happy life. When two are submitted under the mission of Jesus, that's what a biblical marriage looks like. And the only way to truly be submitted to that is to have a foundation. A foundation built on Jesus. Y'all, I'm just saying, I don't, there's certain settings that I'm in where I ask myself, I don't know how people do it without Jesus. Like, in, in, in moments where there's tragedy, in moments where somebody loses a loved one, and I know that person doesn't know Jesus, I'm like, how do you make it through life? Like, how do you wake up happy? Where is your joy coming from? Because I know that in those moments, I need Jesus. I lean on Jesus. He's my rock. He's my foundation. He's my source. And then I get in conversations with couples that are married and they don't know Jesus. And I'm just like, where is your, like, what's the foundation of your marriage? Like, is it built on his love, your love, your desire? Like, I, I mean, some ways I'm like, how, how does it work? Well, oftentimes it doesn't. 97% of divorces in America end and the two people, the two people that were once married had two different morals, values, or religious thoughts going on in their mind. There was not a cohesive unit, a cohesive agreement to say that we're, we're building this thing on the same foundation. And, and here's why oftentimes they fail and they break. Because if you build a house on one foundation, that foundation might crack over time. But most of the time it can be restored and fixed and the house is still standing. But if you take one house and build it on two different foundations, one as solid as rock, the other as weak as sand, what will happen over time is it might look like this, but over time it eventually starts to look like this and that house is not going to stand. A house will only stand when it's on one foundation. The only way to truly be submitted to the mission is to have a foundation on Jesus. I wrote it this way, and this might not resonate with you. I think it kind of sounds stupid, but hey, the Lord said it, so we're going to say it. 
Marriage without Christ is like having egg yolk without a shell. There's still value in the yolk, but you're not going to be able to hold it all together without the support of the shell. Think about it. The minute that you crack that egg, and all you got is yolk. I was going to do a visual illustration, but I didn't want to get my jersey dirty this morning. <laughs> if I'm trying to hold an egg yolk, like I'm just saying, y'all, it's not going to end very well. But why is that shell so important? The shell's almost seemingly worthless. We crack it, we dump the yolk in, that's where the value is, and then what do we do with the shell? We throw it away. But without the shell, there's no way we're going to get that yolk into the place where it was supposed to be to see its true value at work. The same thing is true with marriage. We can try and hold it up with all these other pieces. We can try and hold it up with money. We can try and hold it up with our kids. We can try and do all these other things. But at the end of the day, if there's not one foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, it may not survive. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 4.12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, when your marriage is a mission built on the foundation of Jesus, it will be unifying, not separating. It will be about fighting to keep it together and realizing that God is a God of restoration it will not be about giving up and seeking separation. A biblical marriage is a mission built on the foundation of Jesus. And you want to hear some good news? Someone say, tell me the good news. That I've been in rooms and settings with people that years or decades ago they made a decision to get married. And they weren't followers of Jesus. But now they've become followers of Jesus, and they're like, Pastor, what do we do now? Do we have to get married again? I said, no. But you can't make the decision from this day forward to build your marriage on the foundation of Jesus. Why is that good news? Because it's not too late. It's not too late to get started. Today, the last point that I have is a biblical marriage is hard work. But the blessing is worth it. Come on, is it, how, who's the longest married couple in the room today? Has anyone been married 20 years? All right, longer than I've been. 50 years. Has anyone been married 50 years? 60 years. Yeah. Doc and Janine. Yeah. Is marriage hard work? Is the blessing worth it? Come on. Amen. Marriage is, biblical marriage is hard work, but the blessing is worth it. I did some research. I like to do research when I talk about topics. I wanted to find out why do people get married? What are the top 10 reasons why people get married? Just take a look at this list. I think it's so interesting. Number one, this is in order. The number one reason why people get married is they want to have kids. I mean, the Bible says be fruitful and multiply, and I said amen. I enjoy doing the practice. 
reason. I want to be with my best friend for life. Aww. I want to have sex. Amen. Hey, y'all, what's, in, what's interesting is men think about sex 19 times a day. Women, on average, think about sex 10 times a day. You want to know what they think about more than sex? Food. They think about food 15 times a day. So men, if you're trying to get lucky, make your wife a good meal. All right. <clears throat> Number four, why do I want to get married? I am in love. I don't want to be alone. I've always dreamed of my wedding day. Man, gosh dang it, Hallmark Channel, you just, man, you ruined every father's bank account because of that. Uh, number six or seven, I lost count. I'm single and getting old. I need someone to help me stay organized. <laughs> Society demands it. Or my parents are pressuring me. You know, we can look at this list and we can go, aw, amen, man, that's so true. But look at what eight of these reasons have to start the sentence. I, 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 I. What does this tell me? That in America, we make a decision to get married because of what I want. What I need. And then when we don't get what I want or what I need, we give up. Marriage is hard work. I believe personally one of the main reasons that people get divorced is because they don't understand just how hard marriage is. And I would even go on to say how much harder a true biblical marriage is. In a world that is so counter Biblical, everything in society is going against what the Word of God says. And so to have a true biblical marriage is hard work, but it is a blessing that is so worth it. What's interesting is a lot of people will say, well, we just ran out of love. Well, getting divorced because you ran out of love is like selling your car because it ran out of gas. I'm just saying, at some point, the love meter is going to get a little empty. It's going to feel like there's not much there. And this is why it's so important that the foundation of Jesus is. Because God never runs out of love. Why? Because he is love. That's who he is. Galatians 6. 7 through 9 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give when I think of hard work, I think of sowing and reaping, and all the farmers in the room said, Amen. Especially in dry, drought-stricken Kansas, it is hard work. 
But two principles that I want us to see here of sowing and reaping in our marriage that might just help us understand that, yes, it might be hard work, but the blessing is so worth it is this. Number one, you will reap what you sow. Like I'm just saying, if I go to the store and I buy some apple seeds and I plant those apple seeds in my yard, a few years from now, I'm not going to walk out of my house and go pick an orange from that tree. Like, what did I sow? Apple seeds. What am I going to get? Apples. Maybe. You might just get a dead tree. Think of it this way. If I smile at somebody, most likely, what are they going to do in return? Smile back. When someone flips me off, what am I going to do in return? Come on, I bless you in the name of Jesus. You're the beloved son or daughter of the Most High. I'm just saying, y'all, we get what we give. We reap what we sow. It's in our human nature. And what's so interesting is I have conversations with people all the time when they're in relationships that are struggling. And it's like I just complain. Well, you can't expect to receive grace thoughtfulness, compassion, and love when all you're giving is complaining, criticism, and control. The harvest is going to be determined by the seeds that you plant. I'm just saying, y'all, if you don't like what you're getting, look at what you've been giving. Not just in marriage, but life in general. If you're a boss and you don't like the output that your workers are putting in, you feel like they're not giving 100%, are you? Are you giving everything to your job? Are you showing up on time? Or are you setting a standard that says, do as I say, not as I do? I'm just saying the greatest way that we can live is to live by example, not just the words that we speak, but the way that we live. The Bible says the world will tell us apart from other people by the way that we love. I'm just saying, y'all, people aren't going to come to Jesus in tenfold, a hundredfold, because I put together some sermon and I have this eloquent preaching stuff and all these things. No, people are going to come to Jesus when the church wakes up, becomes the church, and you stop just speaking things, and you start going and loving and doing things for other people the way Jesus would. That's what's going to make an eternal difference. And the same is true in our marriages. I love you. Well, show it. Words might say one thing, but what you sow determines what you reap. The second principle of this reaping and sowing is not just you reap what you sow, but you reap where you sow. And this is often where issues arise. If I plant a seed over here, Why would I ever walk over here and expect to see the tree? I planted it over there. I'm going to reap where I 
So how does this apply? Well, if I put all my energy, all my efforts, and all my passions into my hobbies, why should I expect to see my marriage get better? I'm telling y'all, I'm now shooting in the 70s every week. But is my marriage getting better? No. I'm telling y'all, I found the best spot in Clark County Lake to catch the biggest fish. I'm getting better at my hobby, but is my marriage getting better? No. We reap where we say, okay, so if I put all my energy into the kids, and then we become child-centered parents, is that going to help my marriage? Well, I want what's best for them, okay. You reap where you sow. If I put all of my energy and effort into my career, is that going to help my marriage? Oh, pastor, you don't even know. I'm working overtime because when I hit that dollar sign, then the wife gets happy. No. I guarantee you there's more that will make her happy than just how much money you make. And sometimes shutting the lights down at the office and coming home 30 minutes earlier every night just to have 30 more minutes with your wife is the very thing that she needs. We reap where we so so how do we prioritize a biblical marriage in a world that is unprioritizing everything God? It looks like this. Number one in your life is God. Number two in your life is your spouse. Number three in your life is everything else. The minute that anything takes that place in number two is the minute that we will not reap a healthy biblical marriage. We reap where we, so we actually have a decision to make as married couples that our marriage will be only as good as we decided to be. I, I truly believe that. And, and if you're single in the room or you're you're not planning on ever getting married again, I want to ask you, what married couples do you interact with daily that need to be reminded of the blessing that marriage truly is? Because it's hard work, y'all. And there's going to be days that are harder than others. And there's going to be moments when you can look at them and say, I was married to Jim for 70 years before he went to be with the Lord. And I'll tell you, every one of those 70 years was hard. But let me tell you right now, it is so worth it. Keep fighting for the mission of the marriage. <coughs> okay, pastor, I get it. This, you know, lovey-dovey, blah, blah, blah. But I don't really feel like being nice. I don't feel like forgiving. I don't feel like showing grace. I don't feel like praying for my spouse. I don't feel like working on this marriage. I don't even feel like staying married. I don't, I don't feel like ever getting married, so I'm just going to live as I want. Okay. Let me ask you this then. What other area in your life of significance 
Can you make that excuse, I don't feel like it, and get away with it? Just say, yeah, I don't feel like paying my taxes this year, so I'm not going to do it. You can get away with it for a little bit until Mr. IRS comes knocking on your door. So what do you do? You do the right thing. You don't feel like it. But you do the right thing, you pay your taxes, and you move on. Oh, I don't feel like working. So I'm just not going to do it. Well, you don't work. You don't make money. You don't make money. You don't get food. You don't get food. You don't eat. How's that going to go for you? I don't feel like work. What do you do? You wake up. You go to work. I don't feel like taking care of my kids anymore. I'm tired of the baby crying all the time. And, you know, my kids always need this, and they're always calling me for money and this, that, and the other. What do you do? I don't feel like it. But you do it. You become the parent that you're supposed to be. Yet so often our excuse in society of I don't feel like it, I'm not getting my needs met is the only excuse that we need to give up on the very thing that God gave us called marriage. I'm not saying stay in your marriage and just go, well, we're going to have a bad marriage, but this is what God wants, so we're going to stay in it and we're going to struggle. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is from this day forward, you can make the decision to have a biblically-based marriage a mission that is built on the foundation of Jesus. Make the decision to say that yes, it might be hard work, but the blessing is going to be worth it. And make the decision that more than just a legal contract in the eyes of the American government, you made an eternal covenant, a mutual commitment with your spouse till death do you. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. At the proper time. It might not be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be next month. But here's the great thing. God's timing is always perfect. And it's not always our preference. But if we don't grow weary in doing good, in fighting for the covenant of marriage, whether we're married or not, then the promise of the Bible is true, that we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. What could that harvest be like? Well, let me tell you, you could have a testimony. You could have a testimony that says, look where we were, back then, and look what God did. You could have a testimony that says, you wouldn't believe how bad I was, how mean I was, how rude I was, but God showed up and changed my life, and through changing my life, he changed my marriage. You could have a testimony that says, you wouldn't believe how unfaithful I was, but man, the grace of God changed my life. You, you wouldn't believe how neglectful I was of my marriage, but now we have the best marriage that glorifies God in all we say or do or think about this testimony. 
When your children begin to speak about you in a way that sounds like this, my parents have integrity, integrity before God. My mom and dad have made it through hard times, but their covenant that they made before God meant something, and they were going to fight for it every day of their life. A testimony of legacy that you don't just leave behind for your children, but that we all can leave behind for the next generation. Because the greatest illustration that we get in the Gospels of the relationship between Christ and the church is a marriage. And one of the reasons that I believe there's so many people, especially in American society today, that have not truly understood or are willing to give their life to Jesus, the relationship between Christ and the church, a marriage relationship, is because there are marriages and churches all across our country that are not examples of the way Christ would love his church. And I'm telling y'all, when we as the church stand up, when we as the church speak up, and we begin to see biblical marriages flourishing inside of this house, we can truly impact the next generation and everybody in our world around us to see the love of Jesus Christ. And that's the ultimate mission of marriage. It's not that you get your way. It's that the marriage wins, and through the marriage winning, Christ gets the glory. I want to pray for y'all this morning as we close. But I want y'all to hear my pastor's heart. Because I know we've got a ton of people in the room that are all in different places. But I want you to hear from me that it's not over. It's not too late. And that God is still writing your story. I stand up here as a man who's actually walked through a divorce. I, I've been there, so I know the pain. I know the pain of what it feels like to fight when it doesn't seem like somebody else wants to reciprocate. But I also stand up here to say that God is a God of restoration. God is a God of redemption. And that there's no story, there's no struggle, there's no problem, there's no addiction, there is no pain that he cannot heal. Single, married, divorced, widowed, whatever your story is, choose today, from this day forward, to build your life on the foundation of Jesus and everything else will change. Let's pray together this morning. God, we love you. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life on a cross, that while we were still yet sinners and we didn't know you, you died for us. That you knew us, you knew everything about us, and yet you said, I love you. And you didn't just say it with your words, you showed us with your action. So Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room that has not yet received the love of Jesus this morning, that you would open your heart to receive it today. That you would understand whether or not you've had people in your life who have said they've loved you and that their actions haven't followed. That there is a man who says right now this morning that he loves you and his actions have followed. He gave his life for you. And he wants to be in a relationship with you. And that relationship begins by just surrendering and submitting your life to him. To say, Jesus, I need you to be Lord of my life. For all of us. 
The Bible says if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, then we shall be saved. Saved into a relationship with him. The expectation to come that we will get to spend eternity in his presence forever. So if that's you this morning, you need to receive that love. Have that conversation with your heavenly father right now. But Lord, I want to pray a blessing over every marriage in this room. Over every marriage represented by those listening online. Over every dating relationship in this room. That God, you would give us the ability to live with a biblical foundation for our marriage. That God, we could truly see the blessing of what the marriage covenant was intended to be because we are not only founded as individuals on Jesus, but our relationship is founded on you. Lord, I pray restoration right now for any marriage in the room that might be on the rocks. And it's a marriage that needs to be rebuilt on the rock. That they would not give up, but they would fight to remain faithful all the days of their life. To bring you the glory, to understand that they are submitted to the mission of the marriage. And that God, you are a God of restoration, not separation. That God, you are a God of redemption and you will unify them in ways that they've never been unified before. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come into the house. That you would restore their marriage. That you would redefine them as individuals. And you would give them an opportunity from this day forward to love one another in the way you, Jesus, have loved your church. So they truly could have a God-honoring marriage all the days of their life. I thank you, God, for the marriages in this room that are examples to the younger generations of what it means to not just be a follower of Jesus but to love a spouse faithfully for years and to see and reap the true benefit and the blessing that marriage was intended to be. God, may you raise up more men and women like that in this community and around the world to be beacons of your light, your hope, and your love to a lost, broken world. We love you, Jesus. It's in your precious, perfect, and holy name all of God's children said. Amen. Amen. And amen.